Well, good morning. It feels like it's been a little while since I've been up here. We are going to uh, spend some time today, obviously, looking at what the Lord has done for us in the uh, giving of himself. Our communion service is set up in front of us. And we do this uh, every time a Sunday comes along for the fifth time in a month. And it just so happens this month is, is that opportunity for us. So I'm going to have you join me in Hebrews chapter 12, please. Hebrews chapter 12. I want to set a focus for us today upon the crucifixion of Christ. In a little while... As we partake of the bread and as we partake of the cup, there will be verses read and there will be a reminder set before you that when Jesus did this, made these statements about his body being broken and about his blood being spilt, he said that it was for you. My body is broken for you. I do this for you. My blood is to be poured out for you. It's very easy in church settings, especially for those of us who have been in church for what we'd say our whole life, (laughs) that a communion service and even the statements concerning the crucifixion of Christ become uh, part of the thing we do. A ritual, some might call it, Or something that we've become so accustomed to that we say, oh yes, Jesus died. Oh yes, he died on a cross. Oh yes, he died for sin. This morning, stop and add the words, for me. For me. Drew, why did he die on a cross? For me. Andrew, why did he die on a cross? For me. John? For me. Every one of us ought to be able to say that this morning, true? It was for me. For me, he died upon that cross. Let's make it personal. As we study this morning, as we spend time in these words, let's make it personal. It was for me that he did these things. Let our hearts rest there and settle there. As I read to you from Hebrews chapter 12, the first two verses, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the races that set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This morning our focus is, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I'm going to challenge you with those words. What was the joy? Heavenly Father, When we read in your word of what you have done and giving your son for us, we're amazed. We can't help but look at ourselves. 
We can't help but see that we are sinners, that we were your enemies, that we were unworthy, that we were helpless, that we deserved your wrath. But we were given your love. We were given your mercy. We were given your grace. We were given forgiveness. We were given hope. We were given peace. We were given eternal life because you gave your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, when we talk about the joy that was set before him, open our hearts, Lord. Yes, our minds need to understand, but open our hearts too that we realize that what He has done, He has done for us. And challenge us thoroughly with it, because we're about to partake of the bread and the cup, and we don't want to come to this table with callous hearts, or those that are half asleep, and just resting in the, the routine of it. But may we see Christ. Help us to fix our eyes this morning as we talk about the joy. In Jesus' name, amen. This uh, section of Scripture, I know we've read it over and over and over again, haven't we? It's one of those passages that we could, we could come again to the death of Jesus on the cross. And yet, folks, it's a reality that even the greatest scholars of Scripture still find that sacrifice to be beyond comprehension. How many of us can explain to the fullness what Christ suffered? How many of us can even come close to understanding the physical side of it? We've never done that, have we? We've never been even closely related to this kind of suffering that he endured on a cross. I mean, the best I could say is I broke my ankle. Never had my body broken. How many of us can say that we understand the emotional side of what Christ went through on that cross? To cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? To hear them taunting him as it's described in scripture like bulls circling around the cross shouting at him, if you're really God, come down from there and save yourself. The emotional strain of being mocked, ridiculed, accused, abused with words. How many of us know that to that degree? And if it's not the physical, and if it's not the emotional, I ask you this as well. How many of us have ever suffered to the spiritual extent that Christ did on the cross? Oh, well, we've felt shame for our guilt, for our sins, haven't we? He took on your sins, and my sins, and the sins of the whole world upon Himself. Who has ever suffered to that extent? When we think of this cross, we, we, we really have to acknowledge it's quite beyond our comprehension to fully understand it. But the Bible tells us it was love that propelled him to such a sacrifice. How do we even explain that kind of love? 
One of my favorite little songs in our hymn book, the hymn writer says it so well. He says, could we with ink the oceans fill? And were the skies a parchment made? And were every man or every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by uh, trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. And the scroll could not contain the whole if it was stretched from sky to sky. Just love that song to think of uh, how impossible it is to describe the love of God. We are told that our activities in heaven will be to praise the one who was slain and purchased for God with his blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You know, such a song that we are told will be our new song in heaven, such a song never has a closing measure, never has a final note. Imagine that. The praise that we will be involved in will be ceaseless. Have we ever come close to that? In praising Him, ceaseless praise. The Bible tells us to rejoice evermore. How close have you been to that? Evermore? Yet, we will do it when we get there. There will be no end to the praise for the one who has given himself for us. Maybe, maybe then we will understand better what it means that he loves us. Maybe our comprehension will, will be better of that sacrifice when we see who he is and what he had done. I know it would be better than today, where we are right now. But we are going to look at that sacrifice right now. We will set it in the in the study of chapter 12, verse 2. We're going to set it in the context of joy. The joy that accompanies it. Generally, joy, you know, we, we reserve that for the Christmas season, don't we? It's on our Christmas cards. It's, uh, you know, part of our decorations. We like the word joy there because, after all, the angel said, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy which will be for all the people. And we say, well, that's a Christmas message. How do you put that in with a crucifixion? Joy. It's not a word that comes quickly, does it, when we think of the crucifixion. That's not our, our, our first word out of our, our mind or even out of our thoughts or our words even. Joy, when we think of the crucifixion. Because our perspective is that joy doesn't mix with sacrifice. You see, we can look at the crucifixion this way. We could talk about what it is for us, maybe, and insert the word joy. Aren't we joyful that we have forgiveness? We have redemption. Aren't we joyful that uh, uh, He has given to us hope and a future? That's our joy, really, when we look at this. Uh, that's why we focus on joy. It's the result, we say. But today, I want it to be revealed 
this joy is in the midst of the suffering. It's in the midst of the suffering. And these are hard colors to mix together, folks. They're hard colors to mix because we see joy as bright and cheerful. We see joy as colorful. And yet suffering is dark and suffering is depressing and suffering is distressing. And how do you mix these two together? If we were to pull out a thesaurus and it would have the word crucifixion there, how many times would it put as its counterpart the word joy? Usually we sense those as opposites, don't we? But we cannot deny in verse 12, that they're, or verse 2 of chapter 12, they're together in the same verse. Let's look at that carefully for a minute here. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, easily you can see these parts. It talks about Jesus, right? You see that. You see also that he endured the cross. You see that, don't you? It also says he despised the shame. And you may say, well, that's kind of an interesting phrase. Uh, the cross was a shameful thing. The Greek phrase suggests that Jesus put the shame down as something unworthy to even be thinking about. It didn't measure up to uh, what his mind would be occupied with while he was there. Now, we don't miss the fact also, it says, that he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's on the other side of the cross, isn't it? Here's something fascinating. As he's talking about the cross, it's also talking about his future. Most would look at the cross as if that's the end. And that's not the end, because he lives. So even in the midst of the suffering of a cross, he's talking about sitting down next to his father. I think that's a beautiful picture right there alone. But I worked through this passage, and, and here's what's, what I find very curious. When you're reading verse number 2, and it says... Who for the joy set before him endured the cross? All the other parts we can see rather clearly. But when we get to that phrase, who for the joy, for the joy, for the joy. When we cross those words, we run into something so fascinating that even the Greek scholars don't know what to do with it. And you may say, well, it looks kind of obvious to me, but, but here's what, what, what's going on here. We see the word for, and we say the word, well, for, for the joy set before him. That, that sounds easy to translate, but the reality is the Greek word for this word for is not common. It's the word anti, A-N-T-I. You've heard that word before because we use it for a prefix of a lot of things. It means against. It means the opposite of. It's in contrast to. This is kind of a fascinating little phrase because uh, sometimes it's translated instead of. And sometimes it's translated because of. And you say, okay, you just gave me two different ideas. Instead of, 
who instead of the joy set before him endured the cross. And another would say, no, who because of the joy set before him endured the cross. And I said, well, that sounds like two different perspectives. And as I started to work my way through that, I found out there were, are those two perspectives of just a, every single commentator, every single scholar I pulled off the shelf, both of, both of those perspectives are given. One group holds to it very firmly that it was instead of the joy set before him, he enjoyed the cross. And another group holds just as firmly, because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And on both sides are the most excellent scholars you'll ever find. And I say, well, what do you do with that now? You preach both of them. And that's what we're seeing. Two perspectives this morning. From one little word that opens our understanding of what this is. Joy and the sacrifice of Christ. You ready? This is just a fascinating thing that is, is something for us to see. Let's start with perspective number one. Uh, it pertains to the sacrifice of the rights to joy. Let's use the phrase instead of the joy that's set before him. You see, Jesus died on a cross. Let's not minimize that. He died on a cross. He gave up joy for the suffering. It was replaced with anguish. Anguish. In that previous 24 hours, if you were to step back in those days and follow through as the Gospels presented, he watched his disciples squabble at the table who was the greatest among them. He's seen a group of men Reclining at a table with dirty feet, not one of them willing to do a thing about it. He had seen Judas depart in order to betray him. He heard Peter's denial. He noticed the flight of all the disciples when the soldiers came to arrest him in the garden. Any one of those things could have brought us anguish and concern. He saw all of those just prior to being arrested. Then he was beaten severely to the point that even, I would suggest, and I know personally, that if it was me who received 39 lashes, I wouldn't have lived through it. Jesus was beaten for us. Scourged. The scripture says. He was mocked in every single way possible. Publicly. Shameful. He was presented before the world and all who saw him. It would seem that he only knew the opposite of joy. That's all he would have endured there. The true essence of that word anti is right there in that phrase. Instead of joy, in the place of joy, he endured the cross. Maybe that was what he hinted at when he prayed his beautiful prayer in John 17. Hold your place here and go back there. I want to point out two verses for you. John 17, verse number 4. 
verse number 5. This prayer given just hours before he started to endure the physical suffering of a cross. John 17. It would be worth your time to spend a lot of time in John 17. Someday we will. But look at these words. Verse 4. Jesus says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. What is he pleading for before his Father's throne? A joy he used to know. He had at one time with his father, and now he asks for it. Marvin Vincent, uh, a scholar as well, wrote these words. The joy was the full divine beatitude of his pre-incarnate life in the bosom of his father, the glory which he had with God before the world was. In exchange for this, he accepted the cross and shame. The heroic character of his faith appeared in his renouncing a joy already in possession in exchange for shame and death. He had the joy with his father and he set it aside that he might endure the cross. A a passage that speaks so loudly to this is in Philippians chapter 2. Now I will have you especially be there because we're going to look at it twice. But in Philippians chapter 2, one of the most pronounced sections of what Christ did for us is in these words in the early part of the chapter, but verse 6, it's it's speaking of Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 6, Who, that's Jesus Christ, although He exists in in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Oh, he had all the prerogatives of God. And he didn't feel he had to hold them tightly in his hand. He let go. He emptied himself, it says, and became, uh, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Think of these words, for he said these words. Try to comprehend them. Greater love has no man than this, than a man would lay down his life for his friends. Lay down his life for his friends. Now, how do you define the word He emptied himself. The hymn writer says he emptied himself of all but love. And some would say, well, you know, he was God. And that's true. He had the prerogatives of God. What what is that? He had the right to be worshipped, right? Picture him there at the cross. One with the right to be worshipped. Every creature will bow. Every knee will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But they did not do that at the cross, did they? He had the right to that. 
he had the right to be omnipotent, all-powerful. And yet he took on weakness and death. He had the right for omnipresence. I mean, that's God up there. And yet he limited himself. Weakness, limitation, death on a cross. He did not receive worship that day. Like he so rightly deserves. Consider the right that he is just. Consider the right that he is holy. And here he is looking down upon sinners. Here he is receiving the full wrath of God poured down upon him. He had the right to pour his wrath down upon them. Didn't he? Instead, there's our word. Instead, he took our sins upon himself. He had the right to glory. He had the right to joy as well. Yet in opposition, he became a man of sorrows and was acquainted with grief. We can see from such a view, when we consider how Jesus suffered on our behalf, we do not find joy in that suffering, do we? It strikes at our human emotions. It should. There was a, a dear, sweet lady, and I can say her name now because I, I truly trust she's in glory because if not, she's 120 years old and she's miserable as can be. She, she was always saying, I don't know why the Lord has left me here. When I knew her, when her in her late 80s and turning into 90s, her name was Anne. And she sat in the church, the first church I, I was a part of, and every single time I started to hit any verse or any phrase that referred to Christ's suffering, tears would well up in her eyes. She, she knew that it was for her, and it was a beautiful sight. And I could even touch on something that was hardly even recognizable to the average person, and it always struck her heart when she thought, Jesus did that for me. And you could see it just start going down her face. How can we ever look at that cross the same when we know it was for us? He set aside joy. He set aside his prerogatives for joy. And suffering stood the opposite of joy. It stood in the place of joy. That's quite a picture to see. The other day I was reading commentary. Well, it's not a commentary. It's a devotional, actually. Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. And in July the 22nd, I want to read this to you. And, and it's a little bit lengthy, but I think it's worth your attention. If there is one place where our Lord Jesus most fully became the joy and comfort of his people... It is where he plunged deepest into the depths of woe. Come here, gracious souls, and behold the man in the garden of Gethsemane. Behold his heart so brimming with love that he cannot hold it in. So full of sorrow that it must have a vent. 
Behold the bloody sweat as it distills from every pore of his body and falls upon the ground. Behold the man as they drive the nails into his hands and feet. Look up, repenting sinners, and see the sorrowful image of your suffering Lord. See him as the ruby drops stand on the thorny crowns and adore the priceless gems, the diadem of the king of misery war. Behold the man with all his bones out of joint. He is poured out like water. He's brought into the dust of death. God has forsaken him and hell compassed about him. Behold and see, was there ever sorrow like his sorrow that is done to him? All grief, unique, unparalleled, a wonder to mortals and angels, a prodigy unmatched. Behold the emperor of woe, who had no equal or rival in his agonies. Gaze upon him, you mourners. For if there is no consolation in the crucified Christ, there is no joy in earth or in heaven. If, the, if in the ransom price of his blood there is no hope, you harps of heaven, there is no joy in you. The right hand of God shall know no pleasure forevermore. We readily acknowledge that he endured this joy, this suffering in place of the joy that he extended to us. That's perspective one. Enough to rattle your soul, huh? Ready for number two? I'm going to try to do this. This is my favorite part. Speaks with the same earnestness. The evidence, the merit, it's all here too. Joy seen from the cross. Because of the suffering, it set out and displayed before the Savior's eyes. What was that joy that he saw as the outcome of his suffering? What was it he was looking at instead of that cross, instead of that shame? What was his focus? The Amplified Version reads from this Hebrews 12.2. It says this, Who for the joy of obtaining the prize, that was set before him endured the cross, despising and ignoring the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Because of, because of the joy, he endured the cross. <laughs> it seems to fit nicely into our English translation, for the joy set before him. What was the reward? What was the reward? You know, we use rewards at times to get our children to do things, don't we? Sometimes we use threats. But we use rewards on occasion. We say, you know, if you do this, I'll give you this, I'll give you that. And then we, we do things like that. And it may sound funny in reference to Christ. After all, you know, he came to willingly do what his father called him to do, Right? But we also know that the Father intended to do something as a reward for His Son's obedience. 
Did the Savior know that? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. He knew what the Father had said would be the outcome of these things. If you kept your place in Philippians, you're in good place right now because I'm turning you there again. If you didn't, now you've got to go look it up again. Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to read the same passage and go a little bit further. Speaking of Jesus Christ in verse 5, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason God highly exalted him, and gave him a name, which is above every name. You know, Paul did not create that as a new concept when he was writing the book of Philippians one day. He didn't say, hey, Philippians, here's something new. Wait till I tell you about this. You'll find it in the Old Testament. You'll find it all the way back to even Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is primarily considered the crucifixion psalm. And if you read through that, and I'm not going to take the time this morning because we, we don't have a lot of time, but Psalm 22, the first half of the psalm, just talks about, I am a worm and not a man. I'm a, a reproach of men and despised by the people and they're sneering at me. It's a perfect description of the crucifixion all the way through here where he talks about being poured out like water and his bones are out of joint and his heart is like wax and they, they lay me in the dust of death and they surround me like dogs and, and they stare at me, they count my bones. And here how you know it's especially of the crucifixion. In verse 18 says, They divide, divide my garments among them. You can't miss it. As you read these words, you say, wow, this is the crucifixion of Christ. But there's a shift in it. And this is the one section I want to read to you. It starts in verse 19. And listen carefully to what is said in the midst of that terrible crucifixion scene. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. You who fear the Lord. I, I mean, sorry, verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Here's a sudden change. The writer, describing his own death as he's writing it out, says, and then I'm going to tell my brothers about this one. What does that imply? There's life on the other side. There's life on the other side. If you read through the words, you'll see it so often. He says, but this is the other side. You come, from you, verse 25, from you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live Forever. This writer is looking beyond the suffering. And he sees satisfaction. How could that be? How could that be? Let me give you another passage. It's very familiar to you. It's out of Isaiah. Chapter 53, verse 10. 
and verse 11 and 12, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. How could he see them if he was still dead? He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he bears their iniquity. On and on and on it goes that the Lord had promised to his son that on the other side of that cross was a joy. There was a joy set before him. And because of that joy, he endured the cross. He prayed for that. I read it to you earlier, but let me read it again. John 17, this time verse 24. Father, I desire also they whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Now this is just hours before his crucifixion. But guess what he's praying about? Our future. And where shall we be? With him. That they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. There was a joy that Jesus looked for as he endured the cross. We may wonder at times what occupied his mind, the moments of silence up there, between the cries for a drink because he thirsts, and somewhere at the point where he cries out concerning his father abandoning him. You hear those words of anguish, but do you not think that he also was thinking of his joy? What was it that was set before him? Could it have been you? Could it have been me? Who now are his offspring because of his suffering? Who is it that benefits from that cross? Who is it that stands here today, sits here today, and has the joy of forgiveness, and the joy of salvation, and the joy of peace, and the joy of reconciliation? Who is it? Is it not you and me? Did he not say, I did this for you? Maybe every time you see that word joy, the best thing to put beside it is a mirror. That's his joy. That just rattles me inside out. That he should love me that much that he endured a cross. That he endured a cross. I can't fathom anything more joyless than a cross. And yet, the perspective Jesus has here is so much greater, so further reaching, so, so more fulfilling than we will ever know. But I would gladly claim both of these perspectives this morning. He set aside something magnificent for you and me. 
But he looked forward to something magnificent in you and me. The joy in the suffering. What a Savior we have. What a Savior we have. I'm going to have the men join us here as we partake together of this communion service. These are the words I wanted to settle in your heart as we take of these things and see what he has done. So men, would you come forward, please?